the world's population is skyrocketing. And with it, we may wonder, is it possible to feed everybody? Right now, 1.3 billion people live in poverty. 850 million of those are malnourished. Some people say that the world can't sustain all of these people. But is that true? Have we reached the maximum population of the world? It seems like a hopeless challenge. Should we just make more farms? If we just start cutting down forests to make more farmland, then there are less trees, and that makes the climate change problem worse. And already, climate change is smacking some parts of the world with more severe droughts and making farming more difficult. Things don't seem to be getting any better. So how can we feed the world? What if I told you that it was possible to keep everybody in the world fed? What if I told you that this planet has enough resources to support 10 billion people? And maybe even more? What do we need to change about how we think about food and how farming is done to make sure that everybody has something on their plate and to make sure that nobody in this world goes to bed hungry ever again? This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, and wherever you get your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, ethics, culture, philosophy, and food. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Supporters of this podcast will receive some bonus material about what we can do to help to feed the world's population. If you're not a supporter of this podcast and you want to be, head over to patreon.com sparkdialogue. And you can also find more information about how to become a supporter at sparkdialogue.com. Hello, I'm Dieter Gerten from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Potsdam, Germany. I'm also professor for global change, climatology and hydrology at the Humboldt University of Berlin. We are 7.7 billion people on planet Earth, exponentially growing in the past 50 years or so. Of these, like 850 million are still undernourished. And at the same time, uh, we expect further population growth in the future. Uh, so it's expected that world population will be like 9, 10, or maybe even 11 or more billion people by the mid and end of this century. We need to feed a, a growing world population, while at the same time we need to protect the global environment. Some people say that the situation is dire. We can't feed all of the people on the planet right now. How can we feed all of the people if the world's population keeps growing? These people feel hopeless. Is it possible to really feed 10 billion people, maybe even more? So it's not so much a question of how many people we will actually be if we don't go very much beyond 10 billion, but it's a lot about our lifestyles, the way we produce food, where we get the food from, and what sort of food we actually eat. It's more like about the food system as such. We can feed the world. The Earth has the capacity to sustain a massive population of humanity. But to do so, we have to make some big societal changes in how we produce food and how we think about food. First, we need to think about getting the food from the farms to our tables. Not all countries and all people 
get the food that they actually require. This has a lot to do with uh, yeah, distribution problems. That in many countries you you don't have the financial and natural resources to prevent, provide enough food uh, for the people. So that's a very complicated uh, matter of politics, economics. And, and natural conditions. So it's more like the distribution food, of course. Uh, globally, we produce enough, but not everyone gets access to it. It means that we need to think about how food is produced, from the farm to the table, and see how we can maximize the amount of food we get from the resources we use to produce it. Much of current agriculture depends on exploitation of, of natural resources, like freshwater, groundwater, like we have cut too many forests um, and converted them to agricultural land. Uh, we pollute soils, uh, freshwater systems uh, with nitrogen and phosphorus also originating in agriculture. And uh, biodiversity loss is very strong in, 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 in ecosystems for the past at least 50 years, uh, which is also related to the land cover conversions for agriculture. So there's a big a concern that the way we produce the food is uh, not at all environmentally sustainable. The problem is getting worse. Because of climate change, areas like southern Africa are experiencing more and more severe droughts. These droughts put pressure on an already suffering food chain, killing off livestock and drying out crops. And oddly, these droughts also produce worsening flooding, Storms in Southeast Asia are intensifying, sometimes raising the water level at riverside towns by several feet, smashing the economy as homes and businesses are flooded. Even in my own backyard, storms are getting more unpredictable, summers are getting hotter, and freak snowstorms are more and more frequent than they used to be. We see as climate change is going on, and obviously stronger in the very past years than before, as you say, an increase in droughts, in floods, uh, intensification of the natural El Nino phenomenon, which produces floods and droughts in different regions of the world, but is intensifying. There's also some tendency towards more storms, hurricanes and so on, which might affect uh, crop production areas. But I think the droughts, so dry weather over extended periods, um, like in some cases, years, as we have seen in the Western USA, for example, in past years, but also in other regions, that is really of concern for, for agricultural production. So we, we need to do any everything to avoid further global warming because it will be associated with uh, more droughts, especially in regions that are quite dry already and that therefore depend very much on irrigation of agriculture and thus on the freshwater resources. If there are more people, then why don't we just make more farms? As it is, most of the most productive land of the world is being used for farming. Forests are being cut down to increase the amount of land for farming and grazing. Also remember, plants such as trees take hundreds of times more carbon dioxide out of the air than crops do when planted in the same area. Everything is connected, and this means that climate change will get even worse. A substantial fraction of the, the arable land is already being used for, for agriculture now. So there's not so much um, scope for further expanding agricultural area, especially if we want to protect the, the ecosystems, and especially forest ecosystems. 
which is another sustainability goal globally uh, to protect forests because they have a climate function also, so they stabilize the climate. On top of that, we need probably more areas for biomass plantations, which would be required to keep global warming below two degrees because these are new plantations that would fastly extract CO2 out of the atmosphere. So there's a big trade-off of avoiding climate change and thus avoiding the, the impacts that climate change would have on agricultural production. And at the same time, the pressure that comes from increasing world population, so the pressure of uh, the need to produce more food. Uh, so we have an, an area problem here. We also have a water problem. So we need to think about radical transformations of the agricultural sector. So what can we do? Dieter explains that the solution lies in understanding the world's boundaries, ways to understand how much the earth can support in various areas. The internationally negotiated climate target is that uh, global warming should not exceed one and a half or, or two degrees. So that is a, actually a boundary for climate change that has been defined by scientists because beyond two degree mean global warming, the consequences would be so drastic that they are not tolerable. They would affect, for example, the food production. There is a boundary, a planetary boundary, basically, for, for climate change. But scientists have um, argued in the past 10 years increasingly that stabilizing the Earth system is not only about stabilizing the climate or avoiding that it that there is a runoff effect up to three or four degrees global warming, but that there are other environmental dimensions uh, that we need to take care of. So freshwater use, for example, is there a global planetary boundary? How much water uh, humanity can extract from the system before we see dangerous consequences? Or how much of the forests can we deforest and convert to agricultural land before the forest function globally is lost to stabilize the climate? And then how much nitrogen and phosphorus and chemical materials, new materials like plastics also, can we bring into the environment before we see a planetary problem? Um, so for all these aspects, including also biodiversity loss, the scientific community is looking for global planetary boundaries, so borders, boundaries that should not be crossed in terms of these um, environmental problems, uh, just to avoid uh, very detrimental consequences, as we did for climate change. Now we have defined nine such global environmental boundaries and uh, possible limits uh, that the global community should really avoid to cross. How are we doing in keeping within these boundaries already? Nine boundaries are defined and um, current results show that we have uh, transgressed four of them already. So the one is climate change. Uh, so the atmospheric CO2 concentration is already much, much higher than it was. Uh, if we went beyond two degrees, we would very strongly cross it. And land system change, so deforestation is another boundary thought to be crossed now. We have deforested really huge areas of the world and this is still going on also in critical regions like the, the tropics which have a very substantial function for, for regional and global climate. And now we also see, by the way, that climate change is putting additional pressure on these boundaries with uh, wildfires, droughts and so on, further reducing forest cover. 
So there you see the interactions also. Well, and it's stated that um, nitrogen and phosphorus pollution is much stronger in many regions than it should be. Uh, in Europe, in eastern China, for example, where much of this fertilizer is brought upon the agricultural fields and that ends up in the soils and in the, in the freshwater systems and kind of damages the ecosystems. And another boundary crossed very strongly is so the boundary for biodiversity loss. So we're losing many species uh, for, for decades. And a main observation is that all these transgressions, they have a lot to do with uh, agriculture. That requires land, that requires freshwater resources. Freshwater resources boundary is not crossed globally, but in many locations, so it's an emerging problem as well. The nitrogen and phosphorus pollution comes a lot from, from agriculture and it contributes also to global warming. So agriculture is, is, is at the center, obviously, of violating the, these global uh, environmental boundaries. Once we pass these boundaries, can we ever go back? That depends. Sometimes we can, but sometimes the problem is much more difficult, maybe even impossible. The problem is that many processes uh, which have to do with climate change, because the system responds very slowly, like Greenland ice sheet melting, that would be a process once it's kicked off, it could last for, for centuries, if not millennia, and the permafrost melting in, in the north also. So, but these might really only level off if we cross the warming, the boundary of one and a half or two degrees. So there's really precaution here that we should not cross these boundaries because if we did so, then we might not be able at some point to revert it. However, there are positive examples of, of possible reversion like the ozone depletion in the stratosphere, which was a big problem in the 1990s which is also considered a planetary boundary, which was very much transgressed like 20 years ago or 25 years ago. But the problem was known then. So the spray material was reduced. Uh, so we were able in the end to close this ozone hole over the Antarctic because we got to know what the problem is. We stopped the production of these materials and in the end, the ozone hole closed. So that means... As we understand what the problem is, and if we implement the solutions to address the problem, it is possible to revert the boundaries, at least if they have not been transgressed to a massive amount. Biodiversity loss is a bit more different because, of course, um, the species that are lost will not live anymore in the future, but we can stop the species loss. So this boundary is defined in terms of the rate of biodiversity loss. Uh, if this rate is zero, so if we really would stop any species loss, uh, we could halt the transgression of the boundary immediately. But this would actually mean um, preserving the natural ecosystems, reforesting instead of uh, deforesting and in such me measures. And the same with nitrogen phosphorus loads. Um, Less fertilizer would, of course, mean less devastation for the environment if nitrogen or phosphorus enter the river systems, for example. So in, in most cases, I think it's still possible to, to halt or even uh, to halt the development and avoid a transgression or even revert a transgression if measures are taken now. So what can we do to improve farming to make sure that everybody is fed? First, we need to understand what the problems are. And that depends where you are located in the world. 
We see, for example, in large parts of Europe, in, in eastern China and parts of the USA also, that the nitrogen pollution of freshwater ecosystem is the biggest problem. So obviously there, fertilizer, too much fertilizer is brought uh, onto the fields. We see that also in Germany, where I am based, that nitrogen pollution even enters the groundwater system. So people uh, are concerned that yeah, there's too much nitrogen in the groundwater. This will be not show up in the drinking water we have because uh, there are many methods to remove the nitrogen again, but, but still it's an environmental problem here and in many, many other regions as well. In Western USA, in, in Southern Europe, in um, the Middle and Near East, Central Asia, Australia, uh, those are regions where freshwater is a major problem because these regions are naturally quite dry, so you need to get access to surface water, to groundwater or store water in reservoirs to be able to irrigate um, the food grown there. Using so much water uh, can be very problematic and in some regions um, rivers run dry basically or so much water is taken out of the river systems. So we see species loss there, we see the degradation of the river ecosystems. Even other regions like parts of the tropics or near the tropics, um, rainforests are being cut down for producing food or even worse for producing fodder for animals like soy production in Brazil, which is needed for feeding cattle uh, and in the end for producing meat for people in other regions of the world. Uh, but this is at, it comes at the cost of the forest ecosystems. So that's um, then more related to land system change and, and also biodiversity loss. It is possible to overcome these problems, at least in, in theory, according to our global calculations, but I think also in practicing. But it requires really a, a shift in thinking and in practicing in many aspects. Resource use, like we need too much land, we need too much water and too much nitrogen perhaps to choose enough food. But there's a variety of options to use the resources that are there more effectively and sustainably. There are good examples from freshwater use, for example, but what farmers can do here. So if you imagine a cropland in a relatively dry region, you could just take out water from rivers, groundwater, reservoirs to irrigate the crops all year round, all day round to maximize the crop yield. But what you can, can alternatively do to protect the freshwater ecosystems, you can think of aren't there possibilities on, on the farm to use the rainwater that is falling there more effectively. And there's a, a many options. You can collect water in so-called rainwater harvesting systems, which is about cisterns or inlays into the soil, where you would collect water in rainy periods and store it for use later in the season when it's dry. And the efficiency of irrigation globally is, is um, astonishingly low, more like 50% of the water, I would say, of, uh, that is taken out from rivers, groundwater and so on for irrigation is lost on the way to the field, whether the original intention is, of course, to, to use almost all this water that has been taken out of the freshwater systems for irrigation. 
So we can actually improve the irrigation efficiency in many regions by implementing measures like so-called drip irrigation, uh, where you bring the water directly to the plant, uh, losing only 5% maybe on its way, and only irrigating as much as the plant actually requires. And there are intelligent methods now on the ground to actually calculate and monitor how much water a plant would need. And you can cover barren soil to avoid water evaporating directly out of the soil that keeps more water in the soil that plants can take up and then use it for the growth of biomass. So I'm telling these examples because it shows uh, like if you did this on all cropland that is currently available in the world, you could increase the global crop yield by up to 40% without using any drop of water more and without using any more land uh, than, than presently. But the problem isn't just about food production. It's also about how food is consumed. One of the biggest problems today surrounding food consumption is waste. It's estimated that one-third of food isn't even eaten. It just goes straight into the trash can. That's 1.3 billion tons of food, all wasted. A lot of the food that is being produced is lost on the way from the farm to the supermarket and, and to the homes of people. So, of course, there are possibility to reduce the food losses and food waste along this long chain. Um, and we see that this can make a substantial contribution. Food loss would be zero. We would need to produce less and thus also maintain the environment in better conditions. The second part of this challenge is what we eat. Certain foods are more environmentally taxing than others. And this isn't just about eating hamburgers made of mealworms or salted crickets. How can we change our diets to be more sustainable? So this has different aspects. Um, a main one is if we would eat less meat, we would reduce the pressure on the environment in some aspects. For example, we would reduce the pressure on freshwater ecosystems because I think about a fourth of the water that is uh, currently being used for agriculture, irrigation water, is for irrigating fields where feed for animals is being produced. So if we would eat less meat, we would conserve water in, in many regions around the world where the feed is being produced. And at the same time, uh, if we would eat a steak, uh, much more water is involved in the long production chain to, to produce this than if you would have a vegetarian diet. So from the water pers perspective, but also from the climate and CO2 and methane emission perspective, uh, we would be better off if we would eat uh, less meat. And the second aspect is consumers could think about not necessarily only what they eat, but where does the food come from? So that is, where is it being produced? Could it possibly be produced in a region that is water scarce? Like if you eat tomato, that's a discussion sometimes here in Germany, if you eat a tomato in winter, that must have been produced in a warmer and hotter country under irrigated conditions like Spain, where there's actually quite little water for this irrigation. So this shows like, might it have been detrimental for the environment or even there are, of course, also social aspects, who has produced the food under what conditions. This brings up an interesting question. Is local always better? Of course, if we buy local, there is a smaller carbon footprint to transport your food to you. 
That also means that less food goes to waste as it's being transported. But is local always better? Some crops can't grow well in certain areas without a lot of resources being spent, like oranges in Canada, and it's hard to graze cattle in a location where there is a drought. If you have cattle in, in Kansas or in, in drylands of Australia, the feed for which uh, needs substantial amounts of fresh water for irrigating the fields and so on. And if you eat that, if you live in Kansas or Australia, this meat, you could still ask, well, is this meat being uh, produced under environmental friendly conditions, even if it is in my neighborhood or not? Or should I not probably eat something else or eat at least meat from some other region where it's less problematic to produce it? It really depends on the circumstances and the product. You need a worldwide or global view in the end to look at is the current historically grown pattern of crop production really the, the optimal one from an environmental perspective? Or could we at least inject some changes here and there in terms of the production patterns. And many scenarios for the future actually calculate different land use patterns um, than there are today for achieving um, the food production for 10 billion people while at the same time keeping the climate in balance. That would actually include, according to almost all scenarios that I know, a shift in the, in the cropping patterns uh, globally. We need an international cooperation international trade system that does not exclude countries from getting access to the world market and the food there because they should of course not be excluded from world market in the end so this is also like a poly global policy and trade aspect involved here as well which i'm not an expert in but even if we can produce food for 10 billion people the distribution uh, that still needs to be ensured uh, basically by trade So before you take a bite of that apple, it helps to be conscious of where it comes from. How far did it travel to get to you? Did it need a significant amount of fertilizer or water or maybe even pesticides to grow? How did it get to your plate? Every bite of apple you do and every piece of meat you eat, you can reflect on. Well, let's think about where has this been produced under which conditions and how much might this sort of production uh, contribute to transgressing the planetary boundaries uh, in the end, so in the, in the big global picture, actually. The Earth can sustain significantly more people. But the bad news is, climate change can throw all of this analysis out the window. Food for 10 billion people can be produced while protecting planetary boundaries for fresh water, nitrogen, biodiversity loss, and land use change. We did not look at what would happen if climate change would go on, if global warming would reach 2, 3, 4, 5 degrees even, which we still cannot exclude. If that would happen, I'm afraid this nice story of that it would be possible to feed 10 billion people by preserving these other boundaries that story might be destroyed because the, the impacts of climate change might be really strong with more droughts uh, and so on. Uh, so we really have to take serious this climate change boundary that is the two-degree warming target. But the good news is, if climate change doesn't run rampant, the world can sustain billions of more people. 
we can all have enough on our plates and no one has to go to bed hungry. But like many things, it's going to take a lot of hard work and changes and understanding many different things, like how food is being produced, how it's being consumed, and how it's being transported. But as a global society, we can do it. We can change the world to make sure that nobody ever goes hungry again. But we find if we really take this matter very serious and put together all the efforts that are available in different locations, uh, so everyone can actually contribute to building this world, a more sustainable world we can, we can live in for the next decades and, and centuries. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find out more information at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, you can find more information about what you can do to help feed the world at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to be, check out that same webpage or find more information at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Inescus by Javelinus, Kitele's Happy Place by Stefan Kartenberg, The Stars Look Different by Spinning Merkaba, Two Pianos by Stefan Kartenberg, Jazzy Sax Guitar and Organ at the Club by Admiral Bob, and I Have Often Told You by Even Chu. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.